Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. Seen and how um, we as a church plan to kind of go about doing these things more. And so um, today we're going to tackle kind of this question of what is the gospel? When we say gospel, when we say gospel over everything, what do we mean there? What is, what is going on there? And so... Um, it's kind of an important question, this question, what is the gospel? Um, because this question of the gospel is the thing that kind of defines everything. It kind of defines our purpose, it defines our mission, it defines who we are as a church. And the reality is, is that however you go about defining the gospel, it also tends to be rather divisive. And so wherever you define it, however you define it, um, those people tend to be in And then anyone who disagrees with your definition of the Gospels tends to be out. And so, I mean, there are complete church splits, denomination splits over this question of what is the Gospel. And the really difficult thing is, is that if you were to kind of ask 10 different people what their definition of the Gospel is or how they would explain what the Gospel is, you'd probably come up with about 10 different answers. And I mean, even as we're thinking about this question, what is the Gospel, you kind of have like maybe your own definition inside. Like, how would you answer this question? How would you go about answering this question of what is the gospel? And there was a Christian magazine that kind of published, um, they went around to Christian leaders and they asked them, hey, can you give us a short and simple um, phrase of what is the gospel in seven words or less? So they went to all these Christian leaders, they gave them the Ask them this question, seven words or less, what is the gospel? And I'm going to bring those up here, and, so, and I want to read them. It says, one of them is that uh, they believe the gospel is God refuses to be God without us. Another one is kind of uh, profound, to dwell in possibility. Um, God is love. This is no joke. Um, in Christ, God calls us to reconciliation pretty good one. Divinely present, persistent. God really loves us. In Christ, God's yes defeats our no. Christ's humanity occasions our divinity. That one seems kind of nebulous as well. Um, Everybody gets to grow and change. God was born and we can be reborn. So these are kind of like some really creative answers uh, to this question of what is the gospel. And so maybe your answer isn't as creative as these guys, but I would assume that if we were to ask you and if we were to ask a couple people, what is your understanding or what is your basic definition of the gospel? You'd say, well, it probably has something to do with our sinning. It probably has something to do with Jesus dying and dying for those sins. And eventually we get to go to heaven someday. And that's probably kind of at the core, at the crux of what most of our definitions and imagination for what the gospel is. If we really think about it, if we really got to boil down, it's kind of this like, well, Jesus died. He died for our sins because we've made some mistakes in our lives. And, you know, because of Jesus, we get to go to heaven instead of hell, um, kind of where everyone else is going. And so you don't want hell. You want heaven. So accept Jesus and just humble yourself for a couple of moments and allow him to save you. That's kind of the general, I would say, kind of popular gospel message. And so the reality, though, is that I don't think that any of these answers help us kind of clearly understand and explain the gospel, um, even to our own hearts and to other people. Um, And so 
when Shana and I were preparing for this message, there was a message that someone actually uh, passed on to Shana and I. And we're like, look, you got to check out this message on the gospel. And as we watched and as we soaked it in, we were, we were reminded that the gospel message is actually really quite simple, um, that you can summarize it in four words instead of seven words. Um, and it's actually incredibly profound And in that oftentimes what happens is that we mistake our response to the gospel as the gospel instead of understanding the gospel as itself and letting our response be our response. And so we're going to get into that later this morning, but I just want to let you guys know that I believe that this morning there is a very simple question to what is the gospel and that it will be really nice for us to be able to go out and give this clear answer to other people. Um, And I will just say that this answer, this simple answer to what is the gospel has ministered to my heart and as a constant reminder that the Holy Spirit has constantly been bringing up to me as I think about my response to it. And so I want to take this time and just pray, and then we'll get into it, all right? Dear Lord God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time that we have together to dive into this question of what is the gospel? What is the good news? What do you have for us? What did Jesus come to really do? And God, I pray that you would encourage us this morning and that our hearts would not become distracted that you would bless us, and that your Holy Spirit would work uh, through your word this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. So to kind of get into it and to kind of dig into this question of what is the gospel, we're, kind of getting, we're going to kind of go through five steps. And the first one is that we're going to define what the word gospel means in its original context. The second thing that we're going to do is we're going to see how Paul explains the gospel uh, to the people in Corinth. The third thing that we're going to do is that we're going to see how the gospel is proclaimed through the book of Acts, how real people who experienced Jesus and experienced the Holy Spirit come upon them, how they went out and how they talked about the gospel to other people. We're going to look at that. And then then we're going to ask the question, so what? So we know what the gospel is, so what do we do about it? And then finally, we're going to uh, talk about our response. And so we're going to define, explain, proclaim, so what? and kind of our response. And so the first thing that we need to look at is what does this word gospel mean in its original context, in its original day? And so you want to pull up that slide, Sean. So the word in Greek is angelion, and it is actually two words put together. It's ou, which means good, and it's where we get this word eureka in the English language, uh, which means I found it with a great explanation, explanation, uh, exclamation. And then the second word is angelion, which means message or messenger or angel. Angelion is the word that we get for angel in the Greek text. And so um, if you put those two together, it's really close to kind of the word evangelist. And an evangelist is someone who carries good news. And so we have this good and this good message. And it was a word that was used to proclaim the ascension of a king or a Caesar. And so what would happen is that uh, your community would ultimately probably get annexed by Rome at this time, and a messenger, an evangelical, would come into your city and proclaim the gospel. And that gospel was, Caesar is Lord. And at that, uh, at that time, when it was pronounced that Caesar was Lord, it probably wasn't awesome good news for you, but it was good news for the kingdom that Caesar was lord over because it meant that the kingdom was expanding. And you had a choice when that evangelical came 
to proclaim the good news that Caesar was Lord, you could either <laughs> lay down and submit yourselves to the new governing authority of the day, or you could rise up against it and probably die. Those are kind of your options. You either had to submit or die. But that is what this, <laughs> that's what this gospel is talking about. It is this good news that somebody has been brought and ascended to the place of king. It was also used whenever Caesar had a son. Whenever Caesar had a son, an evangelical would go out to the communities proclaiming the gospel that the son of God had been born. And that son of God at that time would have been the son of Caesar. And so already you're probably picking up kind of this imagery and this language that we have in the Bible all the time. You're like, man, that sounds like biblical language. And what's happening is actually the biblical language is using the cultural language at the time. And it's using it to label who Jesus is. And so the first kind of evangelicals actually are the angels at Jesus' birth because they come proclaiming that the Son of God has been born. And so they're proclaiming this good news. They're proclaiming this new gospel that a new king, that a new son has come and has been born in. Incredibly subversive for the day. Because in that time to claim that anyone but Caesar was Lord was to be opposed to it and opposed to him, which could cost you your very life. And so this is where the word kind of comes from. This is how it's used, and this is what, how the biblical writers use it and mean it when they talk about Jesus and when they talk about the gospel or the good news. So that's kind of the definition. The second thing that we need to look at is how is it explained? How does Paul explain it. And to do that, we need to go to the book of 1 Corinthians. And so if you have your Bibles with you, um, it's not going to be on the screen. We need to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And here we see kind of Paul breaking down what the gospel is and how he understands it and how he wants the people at Corinth to understand what the gospel is. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 1. He says, I would like to remind you, brothers, of the gospel, you could say of the good news, or of the proclamation that Jesus has become king. The gospel that I preach to you, which you have received, in which you now stand, in which you are being saved. Sometimes the gospel is really good message because whoever became king, you relied on for your salvation, you relied on for your hope, you relied on for your strength, for your food, your, for your provision. And oftentimes this is on the state, but here he's saying that your hope is not on the state, but it's on a person. He says, this gospel which you received, which you were being saved, if you hold fast to it, the word that I preached to you, or you could say the gospel that I proclaimed to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered you as first importance what I also received. And this is kind of the gospel message right here, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and to all apostles. And last of all, he ultimately, oh, last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And so here in this passage, we see Paul highlighting Jesus' death, 
And he really wants to make sure that we know that Jesus died. Because he doesn't just say that he died, but he says that he was then buried. And that would be kind of like assumed, right? Other than the fact that Jesus comes back to life. He comes out of the grave. And this is a huge place, especially in Corinth, because there's a lot of people in Corinth who are denying the existence and the reality of the resurrection. And so Paul wants the people at Corinth to know that Jesus was really dead. Not only did he die, but he was buried. And from that place of burial, he was raised again to life on the third day. And then as we continue in verse 12, we see that he emphasizes the resurrection. And he does so in a rather kind of witty way. And so I want us to read that and kind of just kind of see how Paul is tackling this problem of people doubting the resurrection. He says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, even Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Even those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hoped in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. I mean, there's some massive repercussions if Jesus has not been raised from the dead. Paul is basically saying, Look, if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, then that means nobody raised from the dead. And if you're saying that nobody raised from the dead, then that means Jesus didn't raise from the dead. And if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then there's no purpose for church. There's no purpose for being here on Sunday. We might as well go home, have some brunch, sleep in, drink some coffee, spend time together, just doing whatever we want because we're still in our sins and there is no hope. That's what Paul's saying. It's kind of a rather dark picture if the resurrection didn't happen. But then he says, in verse 20, he says, In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, and the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And so Paul makes most of Jesus' death and his resurrection. This is how he understands the gospel, is that Jesus dies for our sins, and that Jesus was raised again, and that we have hope because he's been raised. And then he takes on this, kind of attack against our death and our resurrection. And here he says in verse 22, he says, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ is the first fruits, and then it is coming those who belong to Christ. And so what we see here is that in this gospel message, instead of the message being, hey, the good news has come, guess what? You either need to convert and proclaim that Caesar is Lord or die, the gospel that we received from Paul and from Christ is that we're already dead. Is that in Adam we are dead. And the gospel that he comes to proclaim is that in me there is life. And I'm going to conquer death itself. And we see this conquering in verse 24. It says, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father, destroying every rule and every, every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. 
For God has put all things in subjection, subjunction, subjection, sorry, subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected who put all things in subjection under him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be in all and all. Now that's a really complicated verse. A lot of subjecting going on. Essentially what it means is that Jesus is Lord of all things. That through his death and through his resurrection, God has made him Lord of all things. And that he is Lord of heaven and earth. That he is Lord of... (coughs) Of, of everything that is in existence. Matthew echoes this in his gospel. At the end of Matthew, after Matthew is told of Jesus' birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, in Matthew 28, 19, Jesus says this. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is Lord. And so what we see here in how the gospel is explained, or at least how it's understood by Paul, is that Jesus' death has a big deal to do with it. Jesus' resurrection has a large thing to do with it. And his lordship has a large thing to do with it. And so now we turn to how is this gospel, this death, resurrection, lordship, how is that proclaimed? Is Paul consistent with how the early church proclaimed this gospel message? And if we look at Acts 2, 3, 4, 10, 13, and 17 which we're not going to actually go to any of those places, but if you guys want to write them down in your notes, it's Acts 2, 3, 4, 10, 13, and 17 are places where the gospel is kind of clearly proclaimed to an audience. And that audience is diverse. You've got kings, you've got Gentiles, you've got Jews, you've got the earliest church, you've got the day of Pentecost. And so in all these places, the gospel is proclaimed in some way or another. And so the question is, is how do they go about proclaiming it? How do they go about understanding and giving this gospel message that Jesus is king, that Jesus is king over all things, to the people? What do they focus on? Because I would say in many ways, in our evangelistic model, the things that we tend to focus on are heaven and hell and sinning and making sure that we're not in hell and making sure that we make it to heaven. That's kind of the basic tactic. What's most interesting is that if you were to read these passages, the words heaven and the words hell happen zero times. Now, is, hell sometimes is implied, and our sin is mentioned, but the words explicitly in the places, heaven and hell, are not mentioned at all explicitly. They found a more compelling way to share the gospel. They found that the gospel is actually more about something else than going somewhere else. That actually has more to do with here than it does with going there. And so what we see is that when we look at these passages in Acts 2, 3, 4, 10, kind of through, where they focus on is Jesus' life, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection, us being made alive again, Jesus forgiving us of our sins, and then finally, his lordship. It runs completely congruent with Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And what's amazing is that the Gospels also run congruent to this. If we turn to Mark chapter 1, verse 1, 
I want to know what it says. Can somebody read to me? Can somebody go there and read to me Mark 1, verse 1? You got it, Mandy? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Yeah, thanks. Perfect. The beginning of the gospel. It says, <laughs> yeah, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, we've just talked about what the word gospel means. We've just talked about what it means in this culture. Mark is the first gospel writer, believed by historians and scholars, to put to work this idea of, of cum, <laughs> culminating Jesus' life and biographing it. And how does Mark start? He, marks, he starts by this incredible proclamation that says, this is the beginning of the gospel. This is the beginning of the proclamation that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he's the Son of God. I mean, incredibly, incredibly subversive language because this is how Caesars and rulers and kings were biographied. They would say, this is the beginning of the gospel of Caesar, the Son of God. And what we have here is Marcus saying, no, 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 no. The real king, the real Lord, the real gospel is about Jesus. And he is the true Son of God. And so he begins by proclaiming that Jesus is Lord, not that Caesar is Lord. And that is a big deal. And then he follows it up by going to this prophecy in Isaiah. And he says, look, this Jesus that I'm about to tell you all about, we've known that he's been coming, and here it is. Here's the book of Isaiah to let you know that what I'm talking about has been foretold. And so if we boil it all down, if we boil down this how the gospel is defined, how the gospel is explained by Paul, how the gospel is um, proclaimed to various people around the world, what we can kind of bring the gospel down to in four words instead of seven words is Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. That is the gospel. That is the thing that we go out and proclaim, is that Jesus is Lord. And when we break this down, we can kind of define each word. So Jesus is the historical Jesus. He's the one that was born of the Virgin Mary, walked on the earth, commissioned disciples, performed miracles, and died on a cross and rose again. This is the Jesus that lived and breathed on this earth, that was the Son of God. And then Christ means Messiah. It's kind of the Greek rendering of the Jewish Messiah. And so Jesus, the Messiah, the one who is prophesied, the one who is proclaimed, the one who died for the sins of the world. That's how we can break it down. So we've got Jesus, the historical. We've got the Messiah. He is the Messiah. Then is, and this is the place where the definition of is is really important. Is means that he is past, present, and future especially the present part. He is presently, he has been resurrected. He's been brought back to life. He's not lying in a tomb anymore, but he is with us. He's breathing inside of us. His spirit is in us. He is also present in heaven bodily, physically. And so he is near. And then finally, he's Lord or King or ruler or sovereign. Jesus Christ is Lord. I just hope that we would take a moment and allow that message, that truth, to hit us in new and profound ways this morning. I know it's a simple message, but for me it gives us crystal clarity to what the gospel is. 
because it's this thing that proclaims that a ruler has ascended, and it is Jesus, the Son of God, the Most High, who is Lord over our lives. And so then we have to ask this question kind of like, so what? So what? What is the goal and what is the scope of the gospel? Because I think we have to ask that question. Okay, so Jesus is Lord over all things. So what, what's the goal of that? What's the scope of that? If we go back to kind of our initial definition of the gospel, the popular definition of the gospel, where we focus mostly on heaven and hell and getting people saved away from hell, a lot of times the goal is souls. You've got to go out and save a bunch of souls. That's the, that's the aim. That's the goal of the church is go soul-searching. And get as many souls in as you can. And we need souls. Souls are important. What often happens, though, is that in this view of the gospel, where the souls are the most important things and the soul, souls of people are the most important things, the people's jobs that get elevated the most are ministers and missionaries. And I have talked to enough people that have come from this type of background to where they carry around with them kind of a level of shame and guilt that they are not ministers or they're not missionaries. And they ask this question, how could God use me in my work, in my place, if I'm not a missionary or a minister? I'm not equipped. I don't have the knowledge that you have. I don't know how to talk to people about spiritual things. They've got this list of excuses. And it's real, this, this defeat that people feel when it comes to finding out and seeking out souls is incredibly real, and it prevents us from walking out our calling as priests and ambassadors to Christ where God has placed us. And so this popular gospel, the goal is incredibly, incredibly small. And what happens is that we see Jesus as this kind of form of fire insurance, and, what we, and when he's this kind of form of fire insurance, then Jesus ultimately ends up becoming a means to an end. We go to Jesus, we say a prayer, we get dunked, because we hope that someday we will get to live in eternal bliss and heavenly happiness for the rest of our lives, or at least when we die, when we can escape away from here. And that's not what the gospel is about at all. That's not what it is about at all. That's not why Jesus came. Jesus came so that he could be the end himself. Jesus does not want to be a means to an end. He does not want to be the spiritual tool that we manipulate to get whatever we want. But he wants to be wanted. He wants to be loved. He wants to be known. He wants to be sought out. Jesus is the treasure. He is the treasure in the field. He's the lost coin in the house that we turn upside down and that we rejoice when we find him. Jesus is the end. It doesn't go beyond that. And when we get Jesus, we get heaven. Heaven comes with the package. But heaven is never the goal. Jesus is the goal. And so what we as the church needs to do, we don't need to go out and get a bunch of souls. But instead, what we need to do is we just need to, to introduce Jesus to them. We need to teach them how to fall in love with Jesus. And what we need to do within our discipleship groups, within our small groups, within our community, is to focus in on this one idea of is how do we fall in love with Jesus more? How do we love him more? How do we grow in knowing him more? How do we allow his spirit to be Lord over us? You see this word, this word obedience, 
Oftentimes, it's a nasty, dirty word. We don't like the word obedience. We don't like to obey. We don't like being told what to do. But the reality is, is that when we obey, when we submit to the lordship of Jesus, and we obey him, we're allowing him to be lord over our lives. We're allowing the gospel to be lived through us. And so if we want to say, I want to live a gospel-centered life, what we're saying is that I want to live a life where Jesus is king. And where I follow him wherever he leads me. You see, the scope of the popular gospel is very narrow. Where the scope of the gospel is so much bigger than all of this. The scope of the gospel where Jesus is Lord over all things. It's not just about souls and it's not just about checklists and getting people in. Instead, it's about all things. And so when Jesus says he's Lord over all things, then everything matters. Our families matter, our work matters, our relationships matter, justice matters, the poor matters, art and science matter, business matters. It all matters because Jesus is Lord over all of it. And he is king over all of it. And he wants to lead us in every aspect of it. He wants to lead us in our businesses. He wants to lead us in our day-to-day family. He wants to lead us in our child rearing. He wants to lead us in our friendships and relationships. And the beautiful thing is that when we make the gospel not about a checklist and not about souls, it's in the place where we make it about everything. It's the place where discipleship can come in and where we can grow and where we can challenge and where we can seek him together and know him more. And that's the exciting thing about the gospel is that we allow Jesus to be Lord over our whole lives, to be king over all of it. This is what it means to accept the gospel. And the reality is that every gospel that was proclaimed had a response. Like I said earlier, an evangelical would come into a city and proclaim, Caesar is Lord and you had a choice. It was either submit or die. Like I said earlier, our gospel comes in and says, look, you're already dead. And the good news is that through Jesus you can become alive. We can put to death those things that are killing you. Earlier this week I read the passage, The Wages of Sin is Death. And I read it in a brand new light. Maybe you've always read it this way, but I just thought of like what it actually means. Like the payment for sin is death. And they were like, people would be much slower to sin if the wages were paid immediately. And I was like, yeah, that's true. And the beautiful thing is that those wages are not paid immediately. And instead, we get paid this wage that we don't deserve because Jesus paid it on the cross for us. And so this gospel always demands a response. Pledge allegiance or remain in your death. And what we see is that in Acts chapter 2, Peter proclaims the gospel message to the people. And the people feel like that they need to respond. And they're wondering, Peter, how do we respond? And so this is what it says in Acts 2, 36-38. We're going to see both the gospel proclaimed and people feeling the need to respond. And so this is what he says in 36, 2.36 in the book of Acts. Let all in the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you've crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter 
and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see here, the gospel is first proclaimed. And the gospel in this part is, Let the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This is Jesus whom you've crucified. Right there, Jesus Christ is Lord. Kind of summarized in that passage. Both the historical Jesus, his crucifixion, his resurrection, it's all there. So the gospel is quickly proclaimed. And then the Holy Spirit steps in and it convicts them. And their response is, Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And a lot of times when we talk about the gospel, this is what we talk about. We talk a lot about repenting. We talk a lot about being baptized. We talk a lot about kind of the whole salvation process that's on the other end of it. And that's the response. And we need the response. So we're going to spend the next three weeks talking about the response as we talk about worship, discipleship, and mission. But the goal and focus of this morning is to really just hone in on this question of what is the gospel? What is this proclamation? What is this good news? And the proclamation, like I've said before, is that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is Lord over all things, and that this should move us to a place of response. We're going to see how that grows in the next three weeks, but it should move us to these places of worship, discipleship, and mission. So it's my hope this morning that we would hear this truth in a new way. That we would allow just this simple laser message of Jesus Christ being Lord to surprise us in new ways this morning. To surprise us throughout the week as we go about our days. And we think about what does it mean for Jesus to be Lord. And to be surprised by how the Holy Spirit guides us in response. Just like how he guided those people in Acts 2 where they were like, what should we do? And the Holy Spirit will provide an answer for us on how we should respond in each situation. So it's my hope this morning that we would turn to him, that we would make him Lord over our lives, maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousandth time this morning, but that we would kind of refocus and recenter on this main idea that Jesus is Lord over all things, and that he wants to guide us in all areas of life, and that our hearts would respond with kind of increased intensity that the Lord might be my chosen portion in my cup, that my soul would be like a deer that pants for streams of water, that my soul would thirst for God, the living God, and that we confess with our mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe that God has raised him from the dead. It's from Romans 10, 9. It says that if we confess with our mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe that God has raised him from the dead, that we would be saved. We can declare this today, and I hope that we would be able to go out and declare this with our lives, that we would be a people where the gospel is over everything, where Jesus is Lord of all things, and where we would follow him and his spirit wherever he has called us. Because it's in this place where we can find the forgiveness that we've always wanted and the redemption that we've always needed And this reconciliation begins now, and it lasts forever. And so when we get Jesus, we get heaven. But let us not ever take our eyes off of him. You guys pray with me this morning. Dear Lord God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time that we got to dig in to your word.
and see what it is that you're doing. See how your gospel is proclaimed. How it's about you. How it's about you, Jesus. How you lived. How you died. How you died for us. How you conquered death and how you became king and lord over all things. How you hold all things together. God, I pray that we would submit to you this week our work, that we would submit to you our relationships, that we would submit to you our marriages, our children, our free time, our sleep. God, that we would allow you to speak in all of those areas. And God, that your peace that passes understanding would come and fill our hearts and our minds and our souls. God, teach us to love you. Teach us to know you more. And God, may we allow you to reign as Lord over all things in our lives. God, we thank you for the gospel. Help us in our unbelief and our response. In your name we pray. Amen.